I want to ask you if you would open your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 3, and when you find that, please stand with me as we read God's Word. I want you to know that I plan to begin the Lord's Prayer today, but I called an audible this week, or I'm going to say God called an audible in my life and really, really uh, led me to change directions, and I decided to go in a different direction here, and I've been thinking a lot about the Lord's Prayer in the last three weeks, but an undercurrent has really been living and, and sharing the gospel uh, in, in tangible ways in, in my life. And, and I've seen it in action across the country in the various uh, assemblies we went to, three different churches I went to, amongst groups of believers, very different in style, but all united uh, around a, a common love for Jesus and a, a common commitment to gospel-centered life and ministry. So really today what we're going to talk about is, is living the gospel uh, and, and sharing the gospel in tangible ways as we talk about signs of life. So we're going to read Titus chapter 3. We'll, we'll read from verses 4 to 14. Titus 3 beginning at verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject the factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are so strong and so powerful and that you are here with us right now. We thank you, Lord, that your word is so strong and powerful and that you use it in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes once again, that we would see wonderful things in your word and that we would love you more and that we would desire to serve you with, with every uh, ounce of our being, every, everything in the fabric of who we are, Lord, that we would direct our hearts to you. And we just thank you, Lord. We praise you. We pray that you would be glorified in this time, in us and through us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. But when I was with you last, we, we saw in Acts chapter 2 uh, uh, what the church must be, uh, that the church must be a holy, loving, and united body who is committed to God and, and committed to what matters to Him. We saw that the marks of a God-pleasing church is a, a commitment to God-centered worship, focused upon Him in our lives and in our gatherings. We saw that Christ-centered preaching was a mark honoring the God-ordained centrality of the Word of God in the life of the church. 
and biblical-centered beliefs, Bible-centered beliefs, unified around our, our, our core doctrine, the, the uh, things like the deity of Christ and the sufficiency of Scripture and the necessity of the new birth, but agreeing to disagree on non-essentials and God-dependent prayer, communicating with God in a, in a heavenly-minded perspective and age-integrated ministry, multi-generational life, households engaging in the things of God together and passing on the faith, and gospel-changed relationships that we have a common faith and a common family and a common friction and also a common future together in heaven. And then humble, bold leadership is another mark of a God-pleasing church, that God calls leaders to lead, elders to oversee the spiritual life of the church, and deacons to to meet the physical needs and serve the physical needs of the body. And the last mark was God-confident outreach. God-confident outreach. It's built upon the other marks. It's living and sharing the gospel at home and as a church and in the community and around the world so that others would know Jesus, so that others would know the grace of God in Christ. Jesus, who came to earth to seek and save the lost. And he said that, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Church is a community of believers. The church is not a building. If we were not here, the church would be somewhere else. The church is not a building. It's a community of believers, a called out group of people united around what matters to God. We are called to be outwardly focused. We are called to be externally focused, other oriented. We are the called out ones of God, called out of the world to go to the world. That every believing man and woman and boy and girl is to be engaged in reaching others for Christ. Now in Titus, when we're looking at today, we see that a deep love for Jesus, this is the main point, the deep love for Jesus is evidenced by daily engagement in good deeds. A deep love for Jesus is evidenced by daily engagement in good deeds that God uses for his glory. Now the main themes in Titus um, our salvation, uh, knowing Jesus, and then sound doctrine, believing the truth, and then good deeds flowing from a relationship with Jesus. Now look with me at Titus chapter 3 and verse 14. Right after he instructs Zenos and Apollos, uh, who most likely uh, delivered the, the letter to Titus in Crete, Paul is instructing Titus to help Zenos and Apollos uh, They delivered this letter uh, probably around 62 to 64 AD as Paul was ministering to the Macedonian churches uh, between his first and second imprisonments. And Paul says to Titus, help these men on their way. And then he says in verse 14, he says, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, literally occupations, engage in good occupations to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. The English Standard Version, the ESV, says it this way. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. What are good deeds? Good deeds are benevolent acts that benefit other people. They are profitable. They are useful to other people's lives. It it, it means to do good so someone else benefits. You can do good and it won't benefit someone else, but this is to do good and to benefit others in the process. The emphasis in Titus is on good deeds, but not 
as an end in and of themselves, not a good deeds just to do good deeds, but good deeds as a platform. Good deeds as a platform for effective sharing of the gospel. Paul wanted the churches of Crete equipped for effective evangelism. And this required godly leaders that would shepherd the flock. Look with me at Titus in chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says to Titus, he says this, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete. Titus was ministering with Paul in Crete. Paul left him in charge and he said that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, that's not perfect by the way, but uh, beyond accusation, above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable. Loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, why did Paul encourage this, that there would be godly leaders that would shepherd the flock? Because they wouldn't just shepherd the flock, but they would equip them to go out to their pagan neighbors. One of their own writers, a famous writer, said this about the Cretans. They are evil beasts and lazy gluttons and always liars. How'd you like to have that said about you? What a testimony. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and always liars. They were to be equipped to go out to their pagan neighbors. Look with me at verse 10 of Titus chapter 1. He says this, There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are messing with whole households. He says they, they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. There it is. And he says, this testimony is true. It wasn't made up. They were really like this. This testimony is true. Therefore, Paul says, reprove them severely so that they will be sound in the faith. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And then look at verse 16. They profess to know God. From their mouth they say, we know God. But by their deeds, they deny him. By their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Any good deed. The very good deeds that believers are to engage in on a daily basis as an outflow of the life of Christ in them. Look with me at chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. He says to him, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. He says, teach the older men. Teach them to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. He says, teach the the older women that they are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they can in turn teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, and so on. And then in verse 6, that you, t- you are to urge the younger men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of what? Good deeds. Example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, 
which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Because there will be opponents to gospel-centered living. Look at me at at chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we once were foolish, ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior appeared and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Verse 8 says this. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God, those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, would be careful to engage in good deeds. That's what they're supposed to be doing. That was the outflow of the life of, of Christ in them. And then verse 14, kind of our key verse for today, that our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so they won't be unfruitful. See, in order to gain a hearing for the gospel, you want someone to hear the gospel, and if they want someone to listen to them as they they shared the gospel, the believer's primary preparation is to live a godly life before those who don't believe, not to completely isolate from them, but to be separate, to be called out by God, but then to go back into the world and live a godly life for them where the contrast is evident. A relationship with the, the crucified, risen, and returning Savior will work itself out in tangible ways to benefit others. Those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ will make a difference. True believers will have a life that bears fruit. Not just for here on earth, but for eternity. And in the lives of those they come in contact with, God will use them to make a difference. And there will be recognizable fruit that the life of Jesus in us will work itself out, every Christian will bear fruit. There will be signs of life. Proof of life. Every time we go to Tennessee to visit Angela's parents, we take a day trip into the Great Smoky Mountains. Now, we don't go to the tourist attractions. We don't go to Dollywood. We don't go to Pigeon Forge. We don't go to Gatlinburg. We go to Cades Cove. And it's in the, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park Cades Cove is a wonderful, lush, green valley with a 12-mile loop that you can drive or bike through and and see all sorts of amazing sights. You can see black bears and and deer and wild turkey, and you can go hiking, and you can visit old homesteads and old churches and uh, right there in the valley. Well, this time we saw many bear with their young, some five feet from our car, just walking through the forest. It was amazing. We saw lots of deer, some with huge racks of antlers. But there were signs of life. There were signs of life that were obvious, and they were all around us, and they were abundant. It, it was obvious that, there, that things were living there and that things were reproducing there. But that's what God wants for us. That he wants us to be bearing fruit in every good work. Be doing good towards others so that they will love Jesus too is based on several things. And we see them right here in, in Titus chapter 3. And the first thing it's based upon is this. It's a knowledge and, and, a, and a recognition, really a remembrance of where we came from. What our life used to be like before we came to know Jesus. Look at verse 3. Titus 3 and verse 3. 
we also once were foolish. We were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, even hating one another. God says, this is what we were like. And see, when we remember where we once were, we are less likely to be narrow and judgmental towards those who are still there, to unbelievers that, that don't know the grace of God in Christ yet. See, before we came to faith in Christ, we were without understanding, unable to understand God's truth because our foolish hearts were darkened. Our minds were blinded. So first of all, just a knowledge and a remembrance of, of our former condition inspires good works as we're in Christ. The second thing is that we become aware of our current condition as recipients of the unmerited grace of God, the undeserved blessings of God in Christ. Look at verse 4. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. See, there's only one explanation of our new condition of those who are in Christ. As Homer Kent put it, he put it this way, it is the active intervention of God himself. The cause was not in us. We didn't do it. We didn't manufacture it. We didn't bring it about. God did. That we are responsible to God before him for our sin. And at the same time, God in his sovereignty moved in our hearts to bring us to faith. Giving us the ability to choose to follow and obey him. He enables that. Uh, We are elect. We are chosen by God. And at the very same time, he enables us to choose to follow and obey him. It's humanly really hard to understand and to explain But see, we realize God's love for us and for all people. It says, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, it was obvious. It was obvious. This love came into full view. It was in full public view when he sent Christ to save us from our sins. Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That love that God has for all mankind was in full public view as Christ was publicly displayed as crucified on the cross. And God's mercy showed his love. God's mercy, his, his, his kindness that, that holds back what is due to us due to our sin. So his, his mercy shows his love and, and the condition of those in Christ as recipients of new life is so obviously not a result of any deeds that we have done in the realm of righteousness. He saved us not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness. Our righteousness was filthy rags. We had no righteousness. There was no way we could have been saved by by what we could do. Mercy withheld the punishment that was due to us due to our sin. And now we know that because of God's favor to undeserving people, those who are in Christ can say, I've been saved by the grace of God. The third thing we become aware of is that gift of salvation, that amazing gift of God's salvation. Look at verse 5 again. He saved us. The Greek aorist tense points to a past completed action of God in saving, that he saved believers by the giving of Christ at Calvary, that the act was never to be repeated, that it was once for all. Its effects are appropriated to believers. We get it by the washing of regeneration, as it says in, 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 verse, 
in verse 5 there. The, the washing of regeneration. It signifies the cleansing from the guilt of sin that takes place that makes regeneration possible in the lives of, of, of believers. And we get it by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which describes the imparting of, of eternal life through the indwelling Spirit of God. As John MacArthur put it this way, salvation brings divine cleansing from sin. And the gift of a new, spirit-generated, spirit-empowered, and spirit-protected life as God's own children and heirs. That we are children of God. That we are heirs of His grace. It's a wonderful gift that God gives. And this is, is what is referred to as the new birth. When Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 5, you must be born again. You must be born spiritually. And what happens is this. As we as we recognize and we realize what we possess in Christ who possesses us, that we have been made right with God, that we have been justified, that we have been declared guiltless before him, that we are heirs of his, of his inheritance of eternal life, when we realize that and that we know that amazing realities are waiting for us in heaven and that we are assured of God's care, Right now, here and now as we live on earth, we are assured of his providence, of his protection over our lives and his provision in our lives here on earth. When we, when we know that and we are assured of that, these things combine to give a hopefulness for life that only someone who has been born again by the grace of God can experience. It gives us a hopefulness that can only be experienced by God's children by faith in Christ. And our good works are built upon that. They can't come separate from that. They must be built upon that foundation. That these realities are ours because of Jesus, not us. And that good deeds are inspired by a continuing affirmation of the profitable things that are, that are spoken of in Titus 3, 4 through 7. See, verse 8, Titus 3, 8, look at that with me. It says this. This is a trustworthy statement. It is, a, it is a faithful saying, basically. It's a, literally a faithful word. It's the fifth time in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, that this phrase is used. Faithful word. It, it, it builds a foundation for what is going to be said next, for the exhortation that will follow. That we are, as believers, to continue to affirm these truths on a daily basis. First to ourselves. Preaching the gospel to ourselves reminding ourselves of the grace of God in Christ, reminding ourselves of the unmerited favor that we have experienced in Christ, and that we remind our household, and we remind the body of Christ, and then we go out with that message to the world. When we bring that message to the world, we don't just give something, we give what we have. We give what we've experienced. We give from our hearts. These truths inspire us to do good by sharing the gospel. The biblical teaching is this. It's really clear. Faith comes first and good works follow after. The, the root is faith. The fruit is the works. And verse 8 says, uh, concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. I want you to insist on these, Paul says. He says this to Titus. I want you to insist on these truths. This is the bedrock of our faith. Insist on this. Insist on what? What was being said in verses 4 through 7? That those who believe may be careful to engage in good deeds. And we are inspired to engage because of what God has done in us. 
Now, if you look at, at, at Titus 3.8 and 3.14, there's this word. It's either in your Bible, it's either engage or devote, something like that. Engage or devote. And what it means, it means to stand before. For example, I am standing before you now, presenting God's truth. I am, I am taking the lead in that. It means to stand before. It means to take the lead in. It means to be careful, to be busy doing something. Doing what? To engaging in good deeds to meet pressing needs. The word has a technical meaning as well. It means to practice a profession. To practice a profession. You, you, you have something you do. You might be a lawyer. You might be a doctor. You might be an engineer. You might be a teacher, a coach, a parent, a husband, a wife. You have a God-given vocation, a calling from God. It means to fulfill your profession. It means to fulfill your vocation. It means to fulfill your calling from God of what he wants you to be and what he wants you to do. It means that we're to be occupied in this. We're to be busy in this. And God has called us to it. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourself. It is the gift of God. It's not as a result of works so that no one can boast. And then it says this. We are his workmanship. God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should live in, in the arena of them, that, we, that you are to live your life in the sphere of good works, engaged in good as opposed to bad. That would be bad, right? Uh, engaged in good, angling for an outcome that is good, trusting God for an outcome that is good in the lives of those that you engage with. And it's to meet pressing needs. It's to meet pressing needs. There are, are so many needs in our own lives, in, in the body of Christ, and in our community. So many needs. There are physical needs. There are spiritual needs in so many ways. And often, often, our meeting of physical needs gives a, a groundwork, gives a foundation or a platform to speak the gospel. It gives a, a, a chance, uh, almost a foothold to be built for God to do a work in their heart and in their soul. And we can't meet every need, but we can meet some. We can meet the needs that God gives us the ability to meet right there in front of us. And there's two reasons. The first is really obvious, by the way. It's really obvious. Those who love God will love others. Those who love God will love others. We love because he first loved us. Jesus said it so well. Jesus said it so clearly. He said, love God and love others. Doug shared that with us yesterday morning. Love God and love others. Math, um, Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31 and elsewhere. You cannot separate those two out of the Christian life. You can't say, well, God, I love you, but I don't love the body of Christ. You can't do it. You can't say, I love God, but I don't love you. They go together. You will, Jesus said that the, the, the biggest two commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Can't separate them. They go together. Well, the second reason is found in verse 14. Look at Titus 3, 14. Very end of the verse the very end of that verse, it says, so that we won't be unfruitful, so that they will not be unfruitful, fruitless. John 15, verse 16, Jesus said this. He said, I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will remain. James 2 tells us that faith without works is dead. You say there's a root, but there's no fruit. Something's wrong. I got a lime tree and a lemon tree in my backyard that will not produce. Something's wrong. I got an apple tree that's got lots of apples on it. They're small, but I got lots of apples on it. 
Let's say you have an orange tree in your yard. You will not be able to ignore the oranges when they come, especially when they start falling on the ground and, you know, um, making a mess or a persimmon tree or whatever. You know, you pick the fruit. If you've got a fruit tree and it gives fruit, it will be obvious. But guess what? Fruitlessness is obvious too. If it doesn't give fruit, you'll know that too. And you'd be mighty disappointed in it too. But God wants us to bear fruit. Fruitfulness can't be hidden. Fruitlessness is obvious as well. Look with me at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Speaking of growth in Christ, speaking of, uh, of after receiving the gift of faith, after receiving uh, the, the gift of eternal life in Christ, after coming to a true knowledge of God through Christ, Peter says this in verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, now, now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. So, so add that. To the picture. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, be learning, and in your knowledge, self-control, sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit, and in your self-control, perseverance, patience, and in your perseverance, godliness, being like God. God is at work in believers to conform them to the image of Christ. And look at verse 8. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. For if these qualities If these, literally, are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, those who put their faith in Jesus are expected to take the lead in good works. Believers ought to be the best citizens of their earthly city. Citizens of heaven ought to be the best citizens of their earthly cities. There will be signs of life. What did it look like for the early church? What did it look like for those who came and preceded us in the faith? Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, says this, one of the paradoxes of history is the relationship between the beliefs and the practices of the early Christians as compared to those of the culture around them. The Greco-Roman world's religious views were open and seemingly tolerant. Everyone had his or her own God. The practices of the culture were quite brutal, however. The Greco-Roman world was highly stratified economically, with a huge distance between rich and poor. By contrast, Christians insisted that there was only one true God, the dying Savior, Jesus Christ. Their lives and their practices were, however, remarkably welcoming to those that the culture marginalized. The early Christians, he says, mixed people from different races and classes in a way that seemed scandalous to those around them. The Greco-Roman world tended to despise the poor, but Christians gave generously not only to their own poor, but to those of other faiths. In broader society, women had very low status, being subjected to high levels of female infanticide, forced marriages, and lack of economic equality. Christianity afforded women much greater security and equality than had previously existed in the ancient classical world. During the terrible urban plagues of the first two centuries, Christians cared for all the sick and dying in the city, often at the cost of their own lives. And then he asks this, 
Why would such an exclusive belief system lead to behavior that was so open to others? Why would such an exclusive belief system lead to behavior that was so open to others? Good question. Here's the answer. It was because Christians had within their belief system the strongest possible resource for practicing sacrificial service, generosity, and peacemaking. At the very heart of their view of reality was a man who died for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness. Reflection on this could only lead to a radically different way of dealing with those who were different from them. Reflection on the gospel of the grace of God in Christ can only lead to a very different way of dealing with those who are different from us. We don't shun them. We aren't narrow towards them. That we aren't judgmental towards them. But we remember where we came from. And we remember what God has given us. And so then we are inspired by God to reach out in love with, with the gospel. There are signs of life. Signs of life. So what does it look like today? What might it look like for us to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. What might it look like? I will say this. God will show you what it's supposed to look like in your life. God will show you what, you, what he wants you to do. God will put it on your heart to engage in your sphere of, of operation. God will encourage you. God, God will inspire you as to what you are to do. But I will guarantee you that that the inspiration will be awesome. The follow-through will be really hard. The follow-through will will take a lot of effort. It will take you out of your comfort zone. You will have to be willing to be inconvenienced, willing to be taken advantage of, willing to be misunderstood, willing to be mistaken, willing to be slandered even. What about Paul and, and his example from from 2 Corinthians, in chapter 4, for the gospel's sake, verse 7, he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. So obvious, so clear. We are afflicted on every way, he says, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. It's because of their full identification with Christ. So what will it mean for us? And and, and the way we do things individually and as households and as a group of like-minded believers who are united around our love for God and, and committed to what matters to Him. I'll share four things with you. Four things about what it might mean for us. The first is this, and I I heard a pastor um, say this recently, Craig Groeschel. He said this, he said, to reach people that no one is reaching, you have to do things that no one is doing. To reach people that no one is reaching, you got to do things that no one's doing. So that we will be seeking to reach people that aren't being reached by doing things that aren't being done. And we don't know what those things are right now. We might have an idea. 
What isn't being done in, in, in this community? What's not being done in, in your neighborhood? Often, you know what it is? Often? Often, it is ministry to the invisible people. What do you mean? What do you mean invisible people? Well, the people that we ignore. The people that we treat like they're invisible. The people that we don't want to talk to. The people that we don't want to have anything to do with. The invisible people. The marginalized. The unlovely. The hard to love. The ones that can't pay you back and maybe won't have any appreciation for what you do for them for the sake of the gospel. They might not even want to show you appreciation. In Portland, Oregon, the homeless gather under the Burnside Bridge. And so carloads of Christians from Bridgetown Ministries show up every Friday to minister to them. They provide hot meals, shaves, haircuts, and some volunteers wash the homeless people's feet. Tom Krattenmeyer Krattenmaker of USA Today was stunned by this display. He called it one of the most audacious acts of compassion and humility I have ever witnessed. And this group of the society's outcasts, he wrote, had their bare feet immersed in warm water, scrubbed, dried, powdered, and placed in clean socks. The powder part, I know, sounds a little weird to some of us. Um, but one man said this, one man smiling said this, I can't find the words to describe how good that felt. Maker talked on the significance of the foot washing. He said, washing someone's feet is an act best performed while kneeling. Given the washer's position and the unpleasant appearance and odor of a homeless person's feet, it's hard to imagine an act more, more humbling Sounds like Jesus was onto something in John 13, huh? Right, brethren? You know, Jesus in Matthew 25, he said, um, there's going to come a day that you're going to say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and naked and in prison? When was that? And he says, I'm going to tell you that as mu- in as much as you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. You did it unto me. So the first thing is, we, are, we will be seeking to reach people who aren't being reached in ways that aren't even being attempted at this point. But the second thing is this, as God gives us strength, we will aim to be a counterculture for the common good. A counterculture for the common good. The Gospel Coalition puts it this way, he, asking a question, how should we relate to the culture around us, this contextualization issue, the answer is by being a counterculture. To the question of, well, how does the gospel fit the context in which I live? And amazingly, the gospel, God in his infinite wisdom has given the gospel message and, and a gospel way of life that can fit into every culture, multi-ethnic, multicultural. That's why Christianity has spread over the face of the entire earth. You look at all the other major religions of the world, and they are still centralized where they started. Yeah, they've gone out, but they are still centralized. Not the Christian faith. But by being a counterculture, 
But we, they say this, we want to be a church that not only gives support to Christians in their personal walks with God, but one that also shapes them into the alternative human society that God creates by his word and the spirit. And it's for the common good. That it's not enough that the church should counter the values of the dominant culture. We must be a counter culture for the common good that we want to be radically distinct from the culture around us. And yet, out of that distinct identity, we should sacrificially serve neighbors and even enemies working for the flourishing of all people, both here and now and in eternity. And we do all that, we, we attempt all that, all the while while struggling with our own sin issues, with our own uh, uh, problems in life, just trying to survive at times and processing gospel truth that counteracts the pagan lies that we are bombarded with every day. And praise God, his mercy and his grace covers our sin and delivers us. And as the indwelling Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, he also convicts us of truth, convinces us of the truth. We will be a counterculture for the common good. The third thing is this, that we will hold unswervingly to the one gospel while sharing it in many ways. Hold unswervingly to the one gospel while sharing it in many ways. The message always stays the same. Don't touch the gospel. But the methods we use must change. The gospel can't be touched, but the way we share it must appropriately move. Life Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee is using anything and everything. Here's how they put it. They say, we will do anything short of sinning to reach people with the gospel. Anything short of sinning to reach people with the gospel. They are thinking up new ways of reaching people with the gospel. Some people don't like the way they do it. Some people don't like their methods. Some people don't like their style. But I'll tell you what, I love the fact that I think it is awesome that they are so passionate about the gospel that they're sitting around trying to figure out ways to share it. In fact, uh, they use, they're big on using current technology for the sake of the gospel. For them, it's not just face-to-face interaction. It is Facebook-to-Facebook, Twitter-to-Twitter, and text-to-text. I think it is awesome they are so passionate about the gospel that they are looking for any and every way in every nook and cranny of life to share the gospel. And they're going to reach people that aren't getting reached in maybe the ways that churches try to reach people usually. Here's what I want you to do. This week, this week, look for one new way to reach someone with the gospel message. One new way. At school, at work, out in the neighborhood, um, whatever. Find one way, one, one different way you see, people will listen when they know you care. They will listen. In fact, you will basically have a virtual open door to say practically anything in their life that is, that is profitable for them when they know you care for them. The fourth thing and last thing is this, that we will, when we live like this, when we serve like this, when we minister like this, we will be standing strong in the grace of God. We will be standing strong in God's grace. Paul said to Timothy, be strong, my son, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in God's grace. We know life is hard. That's a foregone conclusion, and it is not getting easier. The temptation, though, to give in or to give up is often strong, sometimes in, in a daily fashion for some of you. It is strong. You want to give up. You want to give in. But, but God is stronger. God is greater. God is better. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. 
so we can stand strong in God's grace. And, and I know that, that life drags us down. And I know that, that life, that you feel sometimes like you just get ground up by life on a daily basis. But let me tell you the good thing about life. The good thing about life is it is daily. That's a good thing. That it is daily. That the sun rises and the sun sets until Jesus comes back. That, that, that it happens every day. Because every single day we see new glimpses of God's goodness. Every single day we see good, good glimpses of God's faithfulness. Every single day is, is filled with, with um, God-given opportunities. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. Lamentations chapter, chapter 3 and verse 22 and 23. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God is so good. But we need each other as well. That's why I'm so glad we're starting home fellowships this week where we have small groups of people meeting for the word of God and prayer and fellowship and outreach in their neighborhoods. See, Psalm 108 verse 13 says this, through God we shall do valiantly and he will tread down our adversaries. He will do it. Daniel chapter 11 verse 32, the people that know their God, the people that know their God will display strength and take action. Display strength and take action. Signs of life. Engaging daily in good deeds. Signs of life. What does it look like? What does it look like? It looks like Rebecca Holbrook going to the D- Dominican Republic to bring the gospel to, to uh, at-risk kids and their parents. It looks like Phil Roberts going to, uh, uh, to South Philadelphia to work in an urban environment at Urban Hope. It looks like 15 or 20 people from Grace just yesterday going to a, a neighbor lady's house and fixing uh, her... her uh, uh, shelves and, and painting and plumbing and gardening. In fact, this lady is a believer and she goes to a local church and you know what she said? She, here's what she said to me. She goes, you know what? It, um, it's great that you guys are here today and, and uh, my church has a lot of good things but they don't have this. Widow who needs help. What does it look like? It looks like you loving your spouse. It looks like you teaching your kids the word of God. It looks like Abby Ayulo raising 600 bucks to build a well in Africa, one of our elementary age kids. It, it, looks, like, it looks like the First Baptist Church of Lenore City, Tennessee, where my, where my in-laws go, sending teams out into the community every Wednesday night this summer, helping businesses, cleaning and, and working for them, delivering food to people who need it, visiting homebound, gathering school supplies to give them away, Prayer walking their neighborhoods. What does it look like? It looks like, um, it looks like Sarah Hughes and Phil Roberts uh, leading OB teams this summer across the country. It looks like Jenna Weisenberger and Caleb Hughes and Anna Niwa participating in OB. Just going out, being available, asking God, what do you want me to do? What, 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 what is there for me to do? And you know what? In some of these things, maybe they don't hear the gospel yet. Maybe they don't want to hear the gospel yet. But maybe they'll be one step closer to wanting to hear and wanting to listen. What does it look like? It looks like Chris Krebs saying hello to Mark, who walks through the parking lot every morning with his two dogs, Maggie and Murphy. They go through the parking lot, one of our neighbors. It it looks like stopping to push someone's car when it breaks down on the road and then stopping to engage them in a conversation. What does it look like? It looks like a vacation turned into a missions trip, as one of our people just told me Friday, an opportunity to, to connect relationally and impact someone's eternity. What does it look like? It looks like you and your household 
and, and your fellow Christians simply being obedient to God's call. That's what it looks like. It looks like us loving Jesus and wanting others to do so as well. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for, for how you inspire us because of our faith in Christ to do amazing things that we are just, we're ordinary people, but you are an extraordinary God. And I know, Lord, that to some it may look small and ordinary and daily and routine, but Lord, we know that in your hands we will be used in ways we never dreamed. And in your hands, ordinary things become extraordinary. And that everyday faithfulness to you is what you've called us to do. And, and, and just to what you've called us to be and to do will produce in us a deeper love for you evidenced by daily engagement in, in, in good deeds that give you glory. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.